This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Even as Hillary Clinton and the Clintons together were, were really under siege by the religious right, she would come out in defense of evangelicals. She felt that they were being unfairly caricatured in the media and that they were addressing a spiritual vacuum and a moral vacuum. You are listening to Quick to Listen. I'm Morgan Lee. This is the week of the Democratic National Convention, and we're going to be talking about Hillary Clinton and her longstanding relationship with evangelicals today. To do that, I am joined by Caitlin Beatty, who is actually here for one of the last times for a couple weeks, huh? Yes, I am. <laughs> I'm, I would say I'm going to miss you, but I'm going to be in Indonesia, so... <laughs> <laughs> so don't lie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yes, I am the print managing editor here at Christianity Today, and I'm really grateful to be joined this particular week by two guests. Um, we have both Kristen Dumay and Alan Noble. Kristen Dumay is a historian of American religion at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Her specific research project she's working on is an examination of Clinton's Methodist faith. It's called Journey of Faith, A Religious History of Hillary Rodham Clinton. It brings to light the hidden influences of progressive Christianity on American politics and society. And that's something that Kristen has recently written about for the website Religion and Politics, as well as the Washington Post. Joining us as well is Alan Noble. He is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of the website Christ and Pop Culture. He's an assistant professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University, and he recently wrote for the website Vox about why many Christians are considering a third-party candidate this election season, something that we have actually talked about on this podcast before. So thank you both, Kristen and Alan, for being with us this week. Happy to be here. Thank you. So... Let's get into this. We are in the middle of the Democratic Convention right now. And as of today, the ESPN stat site 538 is giving Hillary Clinton a 60% chance of winning the presidency in November. 538 is also saying that if the election was today, Donald Trump would have a 55% chance of winning the presidency. Hmm. So I recommend getting on there and kind of seeing how they calculate these statistics if you're interested mm -hmm. in more of that. But I actually want to talk a little bit more about the way that evangelicals will factor into this election and, you know, to what extent they're going to be influencing who becomes president. You know, it seems right now that if Clinton should win this fall, she's unlikely to have much of that support due to evangelicals. And so I want to go over some of the latest numbers on her popularity among evangelicals from a Pew Research study that was done back in June. These numbers, as it will become apparent, reflect the views of evangelicals of all racial backgrounds, as well as both evangelical Democrats and Republicans. According to the study that they did, and these numbers are not going to add up all to 100 because of some statistical things, you can see more on our article about it on the website. But right now, we have 30% of evangelical voters who said that they would vote for Trump. And voting, they would vote for Trump in the ballot, but they're also proponents of him. We have also... Mm. 40 so wait a, wait a minute. The the 30% not only were voting for Trump, but were voting for Trump. Bingo. <laughs> not just yes against Hillary, but they were actively supporting Trump. Correct. Not just as a vote against Clinton. 
Yes. Got it. So the next group of people, the largest chunk that we have, almost half of evangelicals, 45% of them are going to be voting for Trump, but they're doing so as a way to signal that they're against Clinton. Mm -hmm. The next chunk that we have is we have 10% of evangelicals who will be voting for Clinton against Trump. And then we have 6% of evangelicals who say they will be voting for Clinton. So the, the four comparisons are 30% like actively for Trump, 6% actively for Clinton. And I'm going to give you one other set of numbers right now, which is among white evangelical Republicans. So the group that we just looked at right now is evangelicals of all racial mm-hmm. backgrounds of both parties. This is white evangelical Republicans. 94% say they will vote for Trump and 2% say they will vote for Clinton. There's 4% that <laughs> Wait, is undecided. Who, who's the 2% of evangelical Republicans who are voting for Clinton? We will see. Okay. So these we are the... probably get a list of names. <laughs> yeah. It's that small. We'll, we'll be publishing those names on our website. So I want to get into everyone's reaction to those numbers. But before we go ahead and do that, I just want to call everyone's attention to the fact that this podcast, Quick to Listen, is made possible because of the people that subscribe to this magazine, Christianity Today magazine. The awesome people. Thank you for supporting this institution. We appreciate Mm -hmm. you. We offer redemptive and honest coverage of people, events, and ideas that are shaping the church and culture. And so for all of our Quick to Listen listeners, for $10, you can get 10 award-winning print issues, the tablet and PDF issue or editions of each issue, full web access to our website. There won't be stuff that's just subscribers only. You are included in that category and online archives dating back to 1956. So if you want the $10 rate, this is what you need to do. Go on orderct.com backslash quick to listen. It's orderct.com backslash quick to listen. So by subscribing to our magazine, you will be supporting thoughtful and essential journalism and helping us to continue to produce quick to listen episodes every week. Right now, I'm going to ask everyone to like think about how they felt right there when we heard these numbers. <laughs> what was your gut reaction? Um, and share it with us in your best attempt of 140 characters. So I'm really curious of what those what was it 98 percent of evangel of white evangelicals are voting for Trump. White evangelical right? Republicans, and it's 94 percent. 94 percent. So I'm curious how many of those are voting against Clinton? I mean, mm-hmm. one stat is white evangelical Protestants. 44% of those are voting against Clinton. And um, that makes a lot of sense to me. That that rings true. I mean, a lot of people I've seen who've tried to justify voting for Trump. There are a few fringe people who are doing it and who seem genuinely in faith. You know, they're excited about Trump. But most of them are doing so unhappily. Kristen? First, I was surprised, I have to confess. I I didn't think that the evangelical block for Trump was going to be that large. I mean, it's even more evangelicals are lining up behind Trump now than we're behind Romney. And I had thought that having Trump and, and knowing a lot of evangelical leaders who are very critical of him, that that would have some effect on reducing that support. But also... I was looking at the younger generation of evangelicals who, I mean, data suggests have them rejecting the old culture wars to a large extent. And I thought that there might be um, a few more of, of those 
who would fall into the Hillary camp. And mm-hmm. so so initially I was surprised. And then the historian part of my brain kicked in. And I realized, no, I really shouldn't have been surprised. There's a long history here that Clinton is up against and a history mm-hmm. of evangelicalism and her relationship with evangelicals. And so I probably shouldn't have been surprised. Caitlin, I, I think my, yeah, I'm surprised by the numbers in part because the world that that we're in at Christianity Today, what I'm hearing from nearly all evangelical leaders, people in our movement, and nearly all, not all, but nearly all, is wide concern about Trump, calling into question his character, his ability to make good decisions, his um, personality, arguably his his racism. So I'm just wondering, gosh, 94%, like, are we that distant from the evangelical core that we're just out of touch with all the people who are supporting Trump because that's not the world that I'm seeing. So my gut reaction is, I think along the lines of what you were saying, Caitlin is just like a little bit of fear that I am living in a subculture of a subculture. (laughs) And we all are probably, (laughs) you know, inhabiting the closet in this giant mansion where everything that I know <laughs> Wait, is... why does it have to be a closet? <laughs> the Something with the door closed on it where I'm only being able to, like, here, maybe the sound booth of our office. Got it. Yeah, that's good. And I am making assumptions that I think are true based on what I see around me, but are actually not true about everything else right. that's out in the world. Right. And these numbers suggest to me that I need to do a better job as a journalist. Hmm getting out there wherever Mm -hmm. these people are. And I'm also a little bit curious too about if these people are being vocal and they're supported on. And if part of it is just that I'm not on Facebook and that my Twitter feed is just so curated in one direction that Mm -hmm. it essentially kind of blocks them out. Mm -hmm. So the story that we did on these numbers last week actually led with a quote from James Dobson, who founded Focus on the Family. He said last week, I am endorsing Donald J. Trump, not only because of my apprehensions about Hillary Clinton and the damage he would inflict on this great country. I'm also supporting Mr. Trump because I believe he's the most capable candidate to lead the United States of America in this complicated hour. So I actually want to go back to the first part of his sentence where he said his apprehensions about Hillary Clinton and the damage he would inflict on this great country. Um, And I'm wondering if both of our guests can just give us a sense of where this fear and dislike for Hillary Clinton in particular comes from. There is such a long history here. Part of the history is Hillary's own history. Um, So she's been in the public eye for decades. She's also, you know, not to be a conspiracy theorist, but she's had, you know, thousands of hours, hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe in the millions, spent against her for various reasons. And I think that a lot of that is sticking over time. And some of that she's um, could be blamed for for some of this negative attention, but not all of it, I would suggest. But I think here it's actually the history of American evangelicalism that's that's even more critical in understanding just how many things that Clinton stands for that contradict the deeply held values of politically engaged evangelicals since the 1960s. And these are things like, well, abortion is obviously important, 
But even going back to Cold War politics versus big government, there are some um, issues of race and racism and segregation that really on so many issues, Hillary Clinton, um, her politics and also her the way her faith has informed her politics do run against the values that the religious right has held dear since that time. And so there are very real um, religious and political differences here. Um, so I think it's it's both. And I think that those very real differences have fueled a campaign really against her and to discredit her for quite some time. I was a homeschooled kid in Southern California. And I remember hearing Rush Limbaugh. We would drive to town. My mom would listen to Rush Limbaugh. Anytime I hear the name Clinton, there's all this baggage, all this language, this rhetoric, this fear, this anxiety, this idea of corruption, of sliminess, of conniving, of big government baked into me as a kid. Now, obviously, you know, I don't think that way as an, as an adult, but that has an effect. That has a, a cumulative effect. And so I think if you were to ask a typical evangelical, you know, especially white evangelical, why don't you trust Clinton? After you got beyond, you know, you got past statements about abortion, which are real and important and, you know, should need to be addressed. I think there's also this uh, long history of very strong anti-Clinton rhetoric that we have. I mean, we haven't had this problem before we, where we have a, the spouse of a president who is deeply despised by, you know, the religious right, and now she's running. And so there's all of that baggage that she has to she has to deal with. I'm wondering if any of you can give some examples of things that happened during Hillary Clinton's time as First Lady that influenced how evangelicals thought of her. Well, you know, there's the famous um, baking cookies statement. When she was coming under fire as first lady, she said something to them. And she was she was really, I think, talking about some of this, this baggage that mm -hmm. she was forced to carry and kind of apologized, not apologized for, well, I suppose I could just, you know, stay at home and bake cookies. But, you know, instead, she was really, you know, trying to reform society and, and do good through through government and things like that. And so a lot of evangelical women uh, and men took offense at that statement and um, legitimately or not felt like she was against stay-at-home moms, that she was denigrating traditional women's roles. So that was something that she had to really take a step back from and, in fact, I think responded by baking her favorite cookie recipe publicly <laughs> to make amends. <laughs> Um, no, I really do like cookies. <laughs> she was a threat, I think. And again, putting her in the context of what else is happening in American history in the 80s, in the 90s, the, the threat of the Equal Rights Amendment originally, and, and really a, an increasing feeling among evangelicals that they were an embattled subculture that their values, family values in particular, uh, were not valued by the, the larger nation. And I think that, you know, she was really right at the heart of that conflict as a woman in the White House, as a woman who had a career and was politically active. Yeah. And I, I can't even I can't even remember anything that she did specifically at that time. I just remember her being you know, associated with Bill, obviously, and just sort of the this sense that they were this duo, this sort of conniving political duo that you couldn't really trust. They're very shady, and of course, and 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 then part of that is there's this 
uh, view of Hillary as too masculine, right? And that's sort of mm-hmm. a sexist, you know, one of the sexist objections to her that probably not vocalized uh, except in sort of the grosser places on the internet now, but um, it's, it's certainly there. It was certainly there in the 90s. You know, this thought that maybe she's really behind Bill. Bill's sort of bumbling, but maybe she's this sort of masculine Lady Macbeth figure. You know, <laughs> you can't trust and she's too, you know, does she even, does she even love him? For, for certain evangelicals, I'm sure that that's still a, that's still a thing. Hopefully fewer, but. That's one of the most common criticisms of the Clintons. And I I do think it's important that it seems like we talk about them as a unit. And of course, they are both a political and a marital unit. But it does seem like whatever Bill has done, Hillary gets associated with, um, which I don't think is necessarily always fair. But it does strike me. I mean, one of the most common criticisms I hear about them is that they're very calculated, right? They're so politically calculating and that suggests a level of either deception or lack of integrity like you'll do whatever you can in order to get ahead that and i i i have no expertise to speak into whether that's true or not it does just strike me though that that is the nature of american politics if they're guilty of that, I have to believe that most people who ascend to the highest echelons of political power have had to play a game of sorts to get where they are. And so it's more of an indictment on the whole political system than it is specifically on the Clintons, it seems to me. I think it's certainly true that, that you have to be calculating to get that far in politics. Yeah, you've got to be careful. You absolutely have to be. And one of the challenges that she faces is she's been she's had so much coverage for so many decades. It's almost impossible for her to shake the uh, image of someone who's calculating because we've seen her be calculating. And and even if even if we thought about it carefully and realized, well, this is just part of politics. You know, unfortunately, so much of politics is is image and appearance. And right now, on the right and on the left, there's a tremendous distrust and fear and anger towards calculating politicians, right? Like we don't want them. They're dangerous. They're not for us. They don't represent us. We want somebody who's an outsider. And, you know, Hillary Clinton is, is not an outsider. And so that viscerally, right, that affects that affects a lot of people. I think yeah. also I would like to take apart this notion of what it means to be a calculating politician. Uh, because it can mean a lot of things. And it's interesting to me how Hillary Clinton is critiqued by conservatives oftentimes as being um, hopelessly liberal, you know, the most liberal candidate that you could have. And <laughs> yet by people on the left, she's mm-hmm. uh, critiqued yeah. for being a moderate. And so, and I think that she is in many ways a moderate temperamentally, uh, even religiously, much of what she has tried to do, I mean, even in in high school, she was appointed to a council that was working to bring together the different factions uh, in her high school, the little preppies, the greasers, and so on. And she was, she was a mediator back then already. She's always played that role in college. She did the same thing between the administration and the, the student protesters. And she often looks for ways to bring people together to compromise, which used to be a kind of good word and now isn't so much in politics. And so 
you know, she can come across as wishy-washy, flip-flopping, or calculating to get ahead. Those are That's kind of the vices. But it could also be a virtue of actually trying to listen to a lot of conflicting views and find a path forward that doesn't make anybody entirely happy, but it is a path forward. This episode is brought to you by Preaching Today. Are you tired of chasing down quality sermon illustrations? Need fresh ideas for helping your message connect? Each week, Preaching Today adds fresh content to our database of over 14,000 editor-screened illustrations. Quickly find the right story that will bring your message to life and help your people move closer to God. Get started today at preachingtoday.com. I would actually argue that a lot of the sentiment towards Hillary Clinton isn't actually that grounded in politics. And this is what I would say it's grounded in. One, it is politics in the sense that her being a woman and the fact that she is married to a recent president is inherently political. And so neither of those things kind of just exist. She She's not the default in a way that a man would be or even a man without political connections And then two, I would say the most important political position that she holds for most evangelicals are her views about abortion and that some of the other views that may people may associate with being more moderate are actually not given broader context about whether they're moderate or not, because the most important issue, she does not come off across as moderate, especially with the recent Hyde Amendment discussions, which we can get into in a little bit. And then three, the two recent scandals, the Benghazi scandal and the current email scandal are both left over from her time as Secretary of State under the Obama administration. A lot, I think there's a lot of confirmation bias that comes with those scandals of we are who we thought you were all along in terms Mm -hmm. of this um, politician who's trying to get her way and trying to do things that may may seem a little bit superior or entitled for that office, but that neither of those political scandals represents a particular political ideology associated with it. Mm. But they do suggest something that people may have already been thinking was true about her character. Yeah, and those and those scandals are so fresh and they keep getting brought up. And, and if you think that the Clintons are very corrupt, conniving, deceptive people, and you look at those scandals, and, and people who, especially people who think they're, they're above the sort of law, those two scandals are definitely going to confirm your bias. Alan, you're, the communities that you're a part of, I know, are, are very adamantly against Trump, but they also have not really decided that they're going to vote for Clinton. Can you talk about what is keeping them from doing so? As you pointed out right, rightly, I think the uh, abortion issue, especially the idea of repealing the Hyde Amendment. So that's, correct me if I'm wrong, bans uh, use of federal dollars for abortions. And and this is this is actually one of my bigger, larger concerns. So one of the things I think that our country in general is facing a major challenge dealing with is increasing secularization. That's not loss of faith. It's just fewer people are agreeing on sort of standards of beliefs. There's more diversity of belief. And so I think the big challenge for the next president, whoever it is, is how do you help people live together uh, in, in peace? And so, you know, we're talking about principled pluralism. And the Hyde Amendment is, is uh, I think, and many of the people who I know think, it's sort of essential for pluralism in a country where we're going to allow abortion to be 
legal um, because this allows people who believe that abortion is the killing of a, of, a, of a child to say, well, I'm not funding it with my tax dollars. You know, I, um, I don't I don't agree with it. I'm going to work to restrict it. But I can sleep at night knowing that I'm a, I'm a, I'm a citizen of a country and I am not actively you know, giving money to a country that is going to be funding what I believe is killing, murder. That's a, that's a big one. And I think it fits, it fits with a larger concern that I have, and, and many other people have, that Hillary Clinton is not going to be uh, very interested in hearing the, the concerns and speaking to the concerns and accommodating the concerns of evangelicals as we learn to live together in a society where we no longer uh, agree on definitions of marriage or beginning of life or all these assorted issues. The concern I have and many others is that she's not going to be concerned with the evangelical side of that. She's just going to be concerned with the other. And the Hyde Amendment is sort of a flag, a big, a major red flag that that's the case. And I have to say that, you know, with Trump, she doesn't have much incentive to be concerned about evangelicals because evangelicals are not even paying attention to her. Right. I mean, so, I mean, they, they've already washed their hands of her. And so uh, what incentives does she have to listen to them? I mean, she's really got to appeal to people who will actually consider voting for her. And, you know, we heard the numbers, 94 uh, percent white evangelicals aren't, aren't going to do that. So I have heard many, many, especially privately evangelicals say to me, I would vote for Hillary so, so quickly if she had a different view on abortion, uh, if, if she wasn't so adamant about being in favor of being so pro-choice. The other major concern that's absolutely related to this is the Supreme Court justices, right? So even if she doesn't actively pursue policies that will potentially restrict religious liberties or make people challenge their conscience. Maybe she's going to be appointing, she's probably going to appoint people who um, are going to be in favor of those things. And that's that's concerning to a lot of evangelicals. I think that the, was it 98% or so, that's not um, who back Trump of white evangelicals, that was of white evangelical Republicans. Republicans. There yeah. you go. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. So, quick yes. question. Thank but you. But I think I, I agree with Alan on this key concern of abortion, and which is now linked to a revived um, discussion of religious freedom. What's interesting to me in, in my historical research, I've come across a number of times in the 1990s, even as Hillary Clinton and the Clintons together were, were really under siege by the religious right, where she would come out in defense of evangelicals. I mean, she she talked about how she felt that they were being unfairly caricatured in the media. She affirmed that they had sincere uh, concerns about American society and that they were addressing a spiritual vacuum and a moral vacuum in in modern America. Oh, so she was also an advocate of of religious freedom. She co-sponsored a bill with Rick Santorum um, to defend <laughs> religious freedom. And I was really surprised to hear that because I, like Alan, had grown up in a more conservative community where that's not the message that I was hearing. Mm -hmm. But recently she's she has been shifting and I'm trying to understand where that's coming from. I think part of that is the pressures 
within the Democratic Party. And we, we saw that through through the Bernie Sanders um, challenge. But also, I think that the issue itself has been shifting so that progressives and evangelicals are drawing the line in different places between religious freedom and freedom to discriminate. So another thing that I think it's worth considering when we're looking at poll data and looking at how many white evangelicals are supporting Trump is to look at a different demographic, and that would be black evangelicals or more broadly black Protestants. And there you see, I think Hillary Clinton is pulling about 90% support with black Christians. And, and I think that's something that the evangelical community, the Christian community ought to wrestle with. And, you know, why is it that black Protestants who hold so many of the same theological commitment with white evangelicals are voting so dramatically differently. And in light of recent conversations, national conversations about race and racism, I think this is something that the church could really engage more deeply. Do you have any thoughts about why this discrepancy is? Well, I think that if you look at Hillary's history, she was deeply influenced by civil rights Christianity. So she um, heard Martin Luther King Jr. speak when she was just a high school student. Her youth pastor took her to hear him speak. Um, her youth pastor also took her to meet with black uh, young people and Hispanic young people at Chicago, downtown Chicago churches. And so from very early on, and, and even before that, her own church was involved in, in supporting integration and racial justice, even in the 50s. And so her Christianity has always been shaped by attention to racial justice. And, and she intentionally sought out relationships with African Americans in college, in, in law school and beyond. She's always had tight relationships in Arkansas. She was very close with a number of black ministers, and she would speak in their churches and go to revivals and so on. And so I think she's very comfortable. They, they kind of speak the same language, and they have a common faith tradition. And so I think that's something that's often lost in our larger analysis, that there's this, this real discrepancy in how Black and white Christians understand their faith and understand how their faith applies to their politics. One question that comes to mind and that has continually come to mind during this election season in hearing just the number of white evangelicals who are continuing to support Trump despite, you know, any kind of reservations they might have about him is that Trump has not really articulated a strong defense of unborn life. So if it is the case that evangelicals are, you know, abortion is their primary concern at, in the voting booth, and that they are single issue voters in, in maybe a good sense, you know, that this is a more they have a moral clarity on this issue. Why is it that they are still throwing in their support for someone who does not seem that concerned about unborn life? Is it just that the Republican Party has come to be associated more clearly with pro-life values and that the Democratic Party has just come to be seen as like the pro-choice party. And so it doesn't matter who's running, how moderate she might be. You're right. Abortion has been so politicized. And I think to the detriment of the country and and American Christianity, frankly. So I think there's this default support for the Republican Party. And yet, if you look historically, you know, even when Republicans held power, they did not overturn Roe v. Wade. And um, so there's a real question 
opinion on whether, I know some evangelicals are asking, have we just been played for 20 or 30 years mm-hmm. on this issue? So I think, I think that's, that's part of this situation. But Trump has also, right, dropped some crumbs <laughs> for evangelicals. He's promised to appoint pro-life Supreme Court justices. He's also promised that everybody will be saying Merry Christmas when he's president. <laughs> so, you know, he's promised a lot of things. And but I think evangelicals very much want to believe that. Yeah. And and so are, are willing to suspend a lot of doubt because this is an issue that is so important to them. So you're saying those crumbs are not like authentic or genuine i have no idea honestly with trump i'm not sure that anybody does trump doesn't know right nobody knows yeah no i i think i think that's right and so the argument i mean i've made that exact argument that this doesn't make sense why are you supporting this guy if you vote if you want if you're opposed to clinton for pro-life reasons why are you supporting a man who didn't even mention pro-life in his his acceptance speech i mean that's just unfathomable and i know many pro life uh, advocates were very alarmed by that and others were sort of just like well this is the best we got so in conversations i've had on social media for people who are in favor of trump their the response i've heard multiple times is with trump there's a chance that he will keep his word and appoint pro life justices now i think practically this is not going to mean even if he did best case scenario for, for, for these voters. He's not going to appoint justices who are going to overturn Roe v. Wade, probably. I mean, that seems very unlikely. But right now, the pro-life movement has focused on sort of local legislation, state-level work to lower the number of abortions. And it's been very effective, even during Obama's, even the last eight years, under a Democratic uh, president, they've managed to make some some si- significant strides. Mm-hmm. But those could be, many of those could be challenged in the Supreme Court and rolled back. And so I think for the pro-life advocates, their concern is, are we going to be a- appointees who, uh, it's not only that they're not going to overturn Roe v. Wade, but they're actually going to work against our local efforts so that really our hands are tied and, and we can't do you know anything legally as far as lo- legislation to challenge this. So their response is, well, look, I know what I'm getting with Hillary Clinton as far as abortion. There's a chance <laughs> Trump will do something. And what's fa- fascinating to me is that the, just nobody's willing to consider, well, maybe we just, you know, if we just stopped and just said, well, then I demand a third party. You know, just demand it. Why settle? And I know there's a history behind this, but I mean, if you if your if your best hope is, well, I'm going to roll the dice on this guy who's clearly dishonest, and, and the little crumbs that he's given us on pro life issues that he's going to actually follow through, then just why do that? I mean, is there a viable third party candidate? So. There's As still Alan a chance. Very there's loudly. still a chance. I'm praying. I'm hoping there's still a chance. So, where's Ben Sass when we need him? I know he's a senator, <laughs> yeah. he's, and he's refused repeatedly. I bet I've offered to babysit his children uh, <laughs> while he's on the campaign trail on Twitter, and he hasn't responded to me ever. And I don't. I don't very know why. Sorry. Yeah, me too. I just want to again talk about how gender is playing into this. So Caitlin actually wrote a piece for the Washington Post that came out last week and talked about evangelical women who are supporting Hillary Clinton, some of whom are supporting her specifically because of her gender and some 
I would say it's it's a little bit irrelevant to why they're actually going to be voting or it's not the key issue for why they'll be mm-hmm. voting for her in the fall. And then there was actually another Washington Post piece that came out recently with the headline, God might not want a woman to be president, some religious conservatives say. And I'm wondering if I could just hear a sense of how you think that her gender fits into this broader conversation and the reaction that she's had. It absolutely plays in. And I do think that within evangelical subcultures, there there's a strong resistance to women in leadership, stronger in, in some pockets than in others. And that has to spill over again, getting back to what what's the proper place for a woman? And are we then somehow taking away value from women who choose to stay at home by um, holding out another standard for women's leadership? I think that's maybe a more sympathetic take. But then there are some who, who simply don't think from their understanding of the scriptures that a woman should have authority over a man. And so I think that would be a smaller subset I think that gender plays probably the most powerful role in less explicit ways. Our implicit notions of what leadership looks like, of what power looks like. And, and that's where I would say evangelicals don't have a corner on that market. I think that a lot of younger women in particular are kind of uncomfortable with with Hillary's leadership style. And, and this is where I think post-feminism is a part of this as well. And evangelicals are, are not separated out of the rest of culture. They've very much been shaped. I think younger evangelical women have been shaped by post-feminism as well, which is essentially this idea that we have all the rights we need. Thanks for that. Um, you know, their, their understanding of the history of feminism is pretty murky, but they're glad that they can work if they want to. You know, they're glad that they can vote and, you know, basic human rights. And they kind of feel like the job is done. So any woman who says it's not comes across as you know, kind of harsh, unattractive, not very winsome, not very marriageable (laughs) for a younger generation. And so they don't really want to associate with that. Um, What's interesting to me is seeing this kind of generational shift that as young women, Christian and other, grow out of their 20s and into their 30s and are in the workplace and having to juggle work and and family and realizing that the societal structures make it really hard for that to happen and cultural values do and that they they realize that they got passed over for a promotion and it seems to them that it's because of their gender and suddenly they realize that the fight isn't over and so you see that in Hillary's support among older women, you know, they kind of get her, they get the challenges she's faced, and they're much more sympathetic to her weaknesses, I think, understanding what she's been up against. And so there, too, I would put American evangelical, or younger women into that category of kind of thinking feminism isn't needed until they bump up against some of the harsher realities and, and then may reconsider. Yeah, I think your point about gender has shaped this election in subtle ways and and really touching on kind of subconscious assumptions about what leadership and leaders, political leaders look like. Even the fact that Clinton is doesn't present as the most traditionally feminine woman in terms of her dress and her haircut. There are certain ways that she embodies the new woman or a woman that maybe we're not we're not comfortable with. I would say, I mean, I'm sure some conservatives would say her gender is not a factor because I I supported Sarah Palin or 
you know, Michelle Bachman or whatever. There were there were these conservative women in positions of power eight years ago. And so this isn't about sexism. This is just about I just really dislike Hillary. What what would you say to that? Sarah Palin is a great example, I think. Now, Sarah Palin also embodied a very different sort of femininity than Hillary Clinton does, right? So Sarah Palin was the kind of, oh, you don't really have to know stuff and you can look really glamorous. And it it was, I think, a femininity closer to an evangelical ideal. So paradoxically, they'd be more comfortable with that kind of femininity in the White House, presumably. However, you know, there's a real difference between vice president and president. Mm -hmm. And so Hillary Clinton's femininity uh, as she's defined it, is is much more of a policy wonk and very much not traditional femininity. She's she talks about how she's always struggled with her hair and can <laughs> never really get it right. And you know, uh, it's and now she's in the spotlight constantly. And so uh, it's it's something that she has a much harder time, I think, appealing to traditional notions of femininity. And so part of her, her pioneering role is to change society's understanding of what it means to be a woman and a successful woman, I think. And that's that's a hard task. There was a project, the Gender Parity Project, funded a couple years ago that polled several hundred evangelical leaders on specifically on women's leadership. And it seems like just, you know, regardless of whatever your views are about women's leadership in the church or the home, evangelicals are much more likely to agree that women can have leadership positions in society. So if you extra, if you kind of divide different spheres of influence or authority, home, church, society, even, you know, traditional or complementarian leaders are saying at least they're they're stating that belief whether they actively support it or not is an is another question. But that was striking to me that there's there seems to be the most leniency on this view on the, on the issue of women's leadership when when we go beyond the church and the home. Gender is actually really tied to ideas of likability and who we find personally likable and anyone that you find likable you are willing to look over their flaws in a way that you will not do for people who you do not find likable. And to the extent that the way that Hillary Clinton presents an image that people find difficult to connect with or laugh with or likable, um, that that means that she has less goodwill to, that she can use up for some of the political mistakes and scandals that she has been a part of or, or even the positions mm-hmm. that she holds. All right, we are going to wrap up. Thank you, everyone, for a really robust conversation and something that I've really enjoyed talking about. Mm -hmm. You can follow this conversation and continue it, and we really, really welcome it. We are on Twitter at CT Podcasts. We are on Facebook at Facebook.com slash CT Podcasts. And please, we'll all be sharing our Twitter handles later and engage, you know, Mm -hmm. in a winsome manner with us there. And we'll be happy to chat Mm -hmm. you up. As we move on, we're going to go to the part of the show where you can all find something that's very likable about us. That part this is sh- us trying to be likable and human. <laughs> <laughs> we call it Precious Moment. We want everyone to go around and share something that gives us joy. And also, everyone can share where they can be followed online. Alan, let's start with you. Uh, for me, it would be my almost 12-month-old little girl, Frances Franny. That's such a cute name. 
It is. We named her after Franny, the Salinger book, Franny and Zooey. But also, I was, you know, strongly influenced by Francis Schaefer as a teen. And so there's just so many neat, you know, it's such a great name. So we call her Franny. And she's, she, you know, p- babies have different personalities. And Franny is a really happy person. She's just, she's just happy. I don't know why. She's so I mean, happy. has she watched, like, the conventions? No, I haven't. So that's probably why. So she makes me very happy, no matter how terrible things are. Where can we find you on Twitter? I'm at the Alan Noble. Awesome. Kristen? Okay, so I'll start with Twitter, KK Dumez, K-K-D-U-M-E-Z. And so Ellen kind of stole my idea. The first thing that comes into mind when I think joy, um, especially because I've just been immersing myself in politics the last several weeks, is my littlest, uh, Louisa, Lulu, a three-year-old with uh, a mop of curly hair who is a little sunshine and sees the world that way. And it's just a joy to come home to her. That's also such a cute name. Man. Caitlin? Yeah. Well, I, in four days, I head to Indonesia for the Lausanne uh, Younger Leaders Gathering. It's something that happens every 10 years, and we'll be in Jakarta. Um, There will be more than a thousand other relatively young evangelical leaders gathering there and spending a week in worship and teaching and collaboration. So I'm I'm there primarily to represent um, CT and, and just grateful for the chance. And I, I will be extending my time there and climbing a mountain at 10 p.m. On your birthday, right? On my birthday, you start out at night and you hike all night. And then by the time you reach the summit, you are able to see the sunrise at the top. Whoa. And then you just go back. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that. You can find me on Twitter at Caitlin Beatty. So the highlight in my life right now is Lake Michigan. And I have been there twice this week. I went in the water, stuck my feet in the water, swam in it, walked alongside of it. I think that the lake is just really beautiful. And I live a couple of miles away from it, so I don't see it. And we don't work downtown, so I don't see it every day. But it's just very relaxing, incredibly beautiful. The views that you get are just... This is the perfect time of the year to go to in Chicago because it's just so hot. Exactly. But the water is like cool enough that it's refreshing. It's pretty chilly, not going to lie. You can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. And that's it for this week. Caitlin, we're going to miss you the next couple weeks. Um, Everyone should look forward to our new guest hosts. We have someone who's never done a podcast before coming in the studio with me next week. You guys will like her a lot. I want to thank the producers for the show, who are Richard Clark and Cray Allred. And I want to give a special thanks to Kate Shelnut. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast. I think we're on Google Play as well. And if you like the show, reviewing us and rating us on iTunes is probably the biggest way that you can show that you like us. Besides getting a subscription to CT Magazine. Both are effective. (laughs) Thank you so much, everyone. We will see you next week. Thank you. Bye. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.